Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by my co-host Randall Jacobs for another edition of In the Dirt. We're going to take a look at SRAM's new mountain bike derailleur Grupo and the removal of the derailleur hanger. It's quite big news and has big implications. We've already seen a couple gravel bikes with this type of dropout ready for this new type of derailleur system. Perhaps some mullet systems will be up and running as we speak and as we record this podcast. It has ramifications in terms of compatibility, both backwards and forwards, and we asked some questions about how Shimano will play into this new paradigm. The new derailleur has some super nifty design elements to it, and a lot of thought was clearly put into it by the folks at SRAM. Speaking of the folks at SRAM, I need to thank this week's sponsor, Hammerhead and the Hammerhead Karoo 2 computer. The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. It has free global maps with points of interest included like cafes and campsites, so you can explore with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. As I've mentioned before, one of my favorite features is Hammerhead's exclusive climber feature with predictive path technology that lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time with or without a route loaded. I was using this feature today. In fact, I was adding on to one of my favorite rides, the Dawn Patrol here in Marin County on Mount Tam. And I decided to extend the day. And honestly, by the time I dropped down to Mirror Woods, I decided I'd climb up the roads because I did not have the legs to go up the trail system, knowing that that trail up Middle Green Gulch has, gosh, it's probably about a 20% climb. I opted for the road and I had my face glued to the Hammerhead Karoo 2 screen as I was watching those gradients change and my legs were aching. I knew what was ahead of me. I knew how long I had to go. And I just kept plugging away. And that kind of knowledge, whether it's in your home terrain or even more importantly, when you're riding routes that you've loaded on that potentially you haven't ridden before, it's just great. It works well for me. I tend to like to know how long I need to suffer for up these hills. So kudos to the team at Karoo2. As you know, they continually update via over-the-air software upgrades. So they're keeping the system fresh. They just released a new e-bike integration that brings detailed battery life usage right to your display so you can stay attuned to if you're running low on batteries. Right now, for the listeners of the podcast, you can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. Simply visit hammerhead.io right now and use that promo code the Gravel Ride at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive offer, so don't forget to use that promo code the Gravel Ride. Just add that heart rate monitor to your purchase of a Karoo 2 at hammerhead.io and you'll be good to go. With that said, let's jump right into my conversation with my co-host Randall Jacobs. Hey Randall, how you doing? Doing very, very well, Craig. Good to see you, buddy. 
How are you? Yeah, good to see you. Yeah, it's been a while. I feel like we've exchanged a few texts here and there over the last, say, 30 or 40 days, but we haven't actually connected. Yeah, I think uh, you've been pretty busy with work and with family. And on my end, um, I just bought a house. And so that's been occupying a lot of my mind share and time, uh, which is that's huge. a lot I'm of fun. Both, yeah. I'm both excited for you and then a little sad because I think feel like that has more permanence of you on the East Coast <laughs> and not on the West Coast. Well, the good news there is that um, I will have two different little uh, guest loft suites in the space. And so come out anytime with the fam and uh, we'll put you up. Great. Where is the house located? Kingston, New York, which um, folks here may have heard us talk in the past about the O Positive Festival. Um, and uh, we actually sponsor that ride. And that ride will be the 6th through the 8th and uh, of October. Um, and the riding out here is beautiful. It's right in the Catskills, the Hudson River's there. It's the original capital of New York State. And so there's a lot to do, a lot to experience. And I can't wait to have, I mean, to meet some of the people um, in our, you know, in the ridership and, and some of our listeners out here now that I'm officially putting down roots. Yeah, I know you've spent uh, a bit of time there in the past through the O Positive Festival and other rides you've you've had with with friends up there. What's what's the riding like in that area? Uh, we have mountains. Uh, the biggest mountain in the Catskills is about four thousand feet. Uh, you can't ride to the summit, but there are plenty of hills, as you might imagine. Uh, and then Kingston is this little urban oasis amongst a sea of you know towns and um, you know and uh, farms. Uh, there's communes, there's there's lots of um, interesting social innovation, new economics type thinking happening here. Um, and as far as the riding, it's it, it's like classic Northeast riding, um, quiet back roads, plenty of gravel. Uh, there's a rail trail uh, that comes out of town here and goes up into the uh, into the mountains. So plenty to do. And just geographically speaking, so you know, listeners can figure out where is Kingston without going to a map. How would you describe it relative to other big city landmarks? So it is about an hour and a half to two hours from uh, Manhattan on the Hudson River. Uh, if you're coming from a little bit further north, uh, I come from Boston, so it's about three hours from from my hometown of Waltham, uh, out on the ninety, and, and south from there for about forty five minutes. So right on the border with with Connecticut on the Hudson River. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So. Well, I know like we've had a lot of listeners from that area and I know it's got a great cycling community. I think the interesting thing about um, the East Coast cycling communities is you have such good proximity to other communities, right? So if you live and ride in Kingston and you have an opportunity to go to an event in Vermont, like that's feasible, mm -hmm. right? Versus yeah. going to Vermont for us from the West coast is obviously a bit more of a, of a hike. Well, and there's lots of small local events in the Northeast as well, which is, which is quite great. And I love the vibe at those, uh, there's a place for the really big events and we'll talk about sea otter in a second. Uh, but the intimacy of an event that has 200, 300 people show up and, you know, everyone's volunteering and, it, you know, maybe the funds go towards some local cause uh, is something that's very New England. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I know you've been operating out of Massachusetts for a while for, for Thesis Bike and Logos Components. Any changes in operation for, for, for the business 
for moving up to that area? Uh, I will need to take my laptop with me from Waltham to Kingston um, and then hook up to an internet connection here uh, to do all the same things as before. But otherwise, we've always been a, a remote distributed team with uh, you know warehouses, one in the US and one in Taiwan. So that'll all stay the same. Yeah. We don't have time to get into it on this podcast, but I have heard about this thing called the internet and how it empowers entrepreneurs to work from around the world. It's like a series of tubes uh, is what I heard from one uh, <laughs> senator in uh, deliberations at one point, but uh, I'll, I'll have to read his testimony uh, you know, in more detail. So let, let's get in. Let's yeah. get into something serious here. Um, so yeah, yeah. lots of stuff to cover. Um, the, the, we have, you know, escape collective, we had Kaylee Fritz on the pod uh, a few months ago talking about, um, what came next after, uh, he was let go at outside and that's huge escape collective.cc. They have a, a, um, a member funded model for independent cycling media. Uh, they are over, they, they more than, uh, achieve their goals in terms of the initial subscribership. And they've got people like James Huang on board who, you know, as you know, I, I personally respect immensely. He's arguably the best in the game. Um, and uh, yeah, they they seem to be doing it. I think it's super promising. Yeah. yeah, it was really interesting that interview you had with him earlier in the year and how he was teasing out some ideas. But pretty impressive how quickly they moved from ideation to actually execution mm -hmm. and pretty impressive how many other journalists across a number of different disciplines they managed to get involved in the project great to see like their community and their following i think a lot of these journalists have pretty strong individual followings good to see those followings all kind of come together and see an enterprise such as escape collective garner enough early subscribers to kind of kick it off and become a going concern. Well, I think it speaks to the quality of the community and the content that they were creating at Cycling Tips, which was founded by Wade Wallace. I remember the early days of Cycling Tips. I was, it was, you know, my racing days and that was the go-to Cycling Tips blog. It's where you went to get like inside line on training with power and the latest tech and so on. And they did such a good job and continued doing a phenomenal job right up until the end uh, when unfortunately, you know, economic pressures and, you know, venture capital demands um, on the model at outside, you know, uh, resulted in a lot of good people being let go and then um, a lot of people following them after. But, you know, it's, and the, the, I don't know if you've been in Velo Club, which was the cycling tips uh, Slack forum. Yeah, um, I was not. Super vibrant, healthy uh, community there, and those people. I mean, I think I think it's still active. Actually, I'm I'm in I'm in that Slack, but they have a new discuss or, or I should say Discord, and um, you know those dynamics are continuing. So, yeah, it it just goes to show that like the the label of the the publication mattered a lot less than the integrity and the competency of the people involved with the project. And uh, yeah, I'll power to them. I I'm very excited to have this sort of funding model for independent cycling media. Yeah. Yeah, I am as well. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a member and excited to kind of get it into my routine of sites that I hit for cycling news. And I'm, I'm still trying to get it straight in my head. Like 
where, why, and what I'm going for there. Is it long form media? Is it the podcast, et cetera? But, you know, super excited to support what they're doing. And I'd love to see the, the sort of media go that direction. I do sort of have some sort of concerns as to, okay, six months from now, eight months from now, a year from now, how does the economic model pan out, right? Can they, can they get more mm-hmm. subscribers? Can they, can they do more? Can they all get paid what they deserve to get paid under this model? I'm, I'm hopeful that there's enough shift in how people want to uh, pay for the content they're consuming that they can achieve the goals and make it, you know, can go in concern for years to come. Well, and if anyone knows what the potential is, it's the people on that team because they had the numbers from when they were at cycling tips. Yeah. Right. So they know what the potential market size is and what the willingness to pay. Um, they had a lot of people paying 99 bucks a year and that's, that's significant. Um, but you're right. Yeah. If you have a, a, a crew of, you know, 15 full-time, uh, journalists, um, you know, that, that, requires significant funding, particularly if you're going to not entirely forego advertising, but um, have it be largely member funded and uh, forego uh, for reasons of, of ethos, um, any sort of like pay to play or, you know, um, are, we may earn a small commission when you click this link and buy the product that we just did the review of. And even if there's journalistic integrity in the review, well, you know, it, it still isn't a great look. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. yeah it was interesting. I, I was listening to uh, another podcast the other day um, and it was reminded of the cycling independent, which was something that yep. was started, you know, maybe 18 months ago. And it's, it's, I'm curious, like how both businesses evolve. I mean, I think with the escape collective, the journalists involved, they all had big social followings and a lot of committed kind of listeners and fans and, and readers of their work. So I think they had an easier time kind of bringing together enough subscribers versus like, I don't hear a ton about the cycling independent. Mm. Well, and I, I think to the community piece, they were really engaged. You look at the, the, I've said this on the pod before, the comment sections in their articles, they were in there yeah. and answering questions and providing perspective. And then the forum, um, you know, there are real relationships formed in the forum as with ours, but uh, the scale, well, when I say ours, I mean, collectively ours, not you and I, uh, the, the, the ridership community. Um, uh, but I think that that is where they really differentiated themselves. And it's, it's been an inspiration. There's a reason why I kind of wax on about this is because uh, for me, I looked at that and it's like, oh, I would love to be involved in building something like that, um, you know, just from a distance. Yeah. N- not that I want to be a cycling journalist. Um, I got, I already have a job, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Community. I mean, sort of selfishly, like it, it's nice to have readers and listeners acknowledge the work that you're doing by paying some amount of money to support what you're doing, right? It gives you a little bit of wind in your sails. And obviously like you and I are in positions where this is something we do for fun. Obviously like I want my costs uh, taken care of ideally by sponsors or contributors to the podcast. Speaking of which relying on it. Yeah. Where can people go to uh, support (laughs) Craig Dalton in uh, covering the cost for the gravel ride podcast, uh, buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. There you hear it folks. <laughs> this, this was not a long winded plug for that. <laughs> by the way.
um, yeah, every every single dollar of it goes towards just covering the costs. I certainly don't take a penny, nor do I want a penny. Uh, this has <laughs> benefits for me that that more than cover any sort of cost that I could incur. And this is just fun. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's transition into riding and and uh, general geekery. One thing I wanted to comment on. So you know, it's been raining like cats and dogs this winter in California. I mean, it's been it's been crazy, and I've been out here for for 20 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And this has been the most disruptive weather to my cycling that I've ever experienced in California. Um, so it's, it's driven me indoors a little bit. And one of the funny things I found, like, I think it was like two months ago at this point, stepping back for a second at the beginning of the pandemic, my wife and I had a discussion around indoor trainer bikes. I was advocating for a trainer to put my bike on, like so I could connect to Zwift. She wanted to get a Peloton. It was clear she was going to probably enjoy the indoor cycling more than I was, because typically in California, I like to ride outside. That's all I do. But we so we ended up getting a Peloton. And quick aside on Peloton, I did find the platform great. Like it definitely is fun, enjoyable. Like I can see why people like it. It my annoyance with it has more been around like if someone instructor is telling me to stand up and go 120 RPMs, I'm just like, what are you talking about? I would never do that when actually riding a bicycle yeah. and that kind of stuff irks me, but I have found my instructors who are cyclists and so they don't say crazy stuff like that. But at the same <laughs> token, like this whole, this whole world of Zwift obviously has kicked off through the pandemic and see countless friends on Strava posting their Zwift files. And I was always curious about it. I had become aware of a, a Kickstarter project that sort of went over the resistance knob on the Peloton, but it never went off the ground. I found out about that, you know, two plus years ago. But just recently I found about found out about this product. It's a hardware hack, which I love. I love the hardware game. Um, it's called the Data Data Fitness Connector. And I found it by searching like Peloton Zwift connection. And it's this little box that you unplug a couple of the wires that go into the Peloton and kind of create this junction box, if you will. That junction box will take the power data and beam it over to your Zwift account, in my case, mm -hmm. on an iPad. So I've been the last two months, maybe less than that, I've been kind of experiencing Zwift and understanding what everybody's been raving about. And you know, I, it definitely has me working out harder. Mm. Yeah. Which is interesting. The, and the I, motivation I think it's because, of... you, yeah, because there is like, there is this sort of sense that you're on a group ride, right. And getting dropped. I, now I don't have to leave my house to get dropped. I can get dropped right in my garage. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so anyway, quick aside, I mean, this product exists. I have found it interesting. It's just been nice. Like hopefully we're kind of getting to the other side of this rain period and I can get outside more, but, um, it's kind of kept me busy and definitely worked me over on a couple instances where I, you know, I rarely get off a, an indoor bike needing to go, like get a recovery drink or take a nap, but that's definitely been the case. I was going to crack a joke and say, and there you have it, folks. Cycling is over. Craig Dalton, host of the Gravel Ride podcast, lives at the base of Mount Tam and is riding in digital worlds instead of going outside. <laughs> but perfectly reasonable um, 
you know, perfectly reasonable to be riding indoors in those conditions. And in general, yeah. I'm, I'm just joking. If you lo- if you love it, some I mean, I hear I've read stories about serious cyclists who've transitioned almost entirely to indoor cycling as a consequence of just life constraints, having kids, you know, a lot yeah. of busy work schedule and whatever. Uh, all power to you. Not my jam, but I can absolutely understand why it's somebody's jam out there. Yeah. Just to underscore how crazy the weather's been out here. So obviously like I'm in the Bay area, we're getting the rain, but when you go up to Tahoe, these atmospheric rivers are creating feet upon feet of snow. Mm -hmm. And I I just caught wind. I was hoping and intending to do the, the Truckee gravel Fondo. I forget what they call it. It just had uh, Carlos on talking about it a few episodes ago in early June. And I just caught wind that they're talking about having to postpone that event in June, because some of the areas where they go will likely still be covered in snow. Which Tahoe in that area is beautiful, but I do wonder how like people were buried for two weeks. Um, You have to really love winter sports and and solitude, I I feel, in order to live up there. Uh, But uh, I guess you could ski I was up there to... There you go. I I thought about that on my last trip to fat bike, but then a storm came in and the guy told me it was horrible for fat biking in an actual storm. So I tabled (laughs) that. I was up at a boy scout cabin with my son and his scout troop. And we had to enter the cabin on the second floor because Mm -hmm. the snowpack in the field was at 10 feet. Well, isn't that a a thing in the Tahoe area? Like you, you have a a lot of the houses have a second floor entrance because certain times of year, that's where you're getting in and the only way, and maybe the only way you're getting out. I don't know about that, but it certainly is logical this, this winter. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. It's funny. Well, Um, we, um, but onto more forward thinking riding plans. I mean, I know we're both hoping to get out to Sea Otter in April. So this coming month. Yeah. If anyone's going to be out there, definitely hit us up in the, uh, in the ridership and let's meet up. Uh, there'll be, uh, I know that Enduro is hosting an event. I don't uh, have the details offhand here. I'll, I'll make a, I'll mention it in the next podcast in case people want to join. Uh, and I'll be there. And um, Sam Jackson, my colleague, will be there. Uh, and hopefully, you'll be there as well if you're if you happen to be uh, at the show at that time. Um, and yeah, if we hear any anything cool going on, we'll definitely announce it here so that we can all meet up because uh, it's always good to put faces with some of the names and and to just connect with folks. Yeah, und- undoubtedly, there'll be group rides, et cetera, in the days surrounding Sea Otter. As people probably know, it's a four or five day long festival at this point with every single discipline of riding available. And I, I, I'm pretty sure there was, when we were down there last year, Thursday and Friday, and maybe even Saturday, there was multiple gravel ride options from various mm-hmm. vendors and partners out there. I'm I'm trying to type and um, talk at the same time. I'm wondering how many people attend. Uh, I feel like it's on the order of a hundred thousand or so. Um, yeah, I think it's it's huge. it's huge. And the facts, I, you know, I love I love the format. Um, so it has become the industry's de facto most important trade show in North America. Um, and the fact that it's also a festival and the trade show is um, largely consumer facing. Uh, consumer facing, ugh, uh, rider facing. So you can go and talk to the engineers and the product people at the, you know, who, who are behind the the things that you use or interested in, uh, I think is really cool. 
Uh, yeah. So I actually skipped Taipei show this year because I didn't have any, you know, strategic sourcing stuff to do. And it's a long flight and I didn't, you know, didn't want to go to mainland right now, um, you know, after that. Um, and, you know, I'm going to go to Sea Otter and see all those people there. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Haven't raced sure. it in a while. Do you have yeah, any races the, planned or? You know, last year I did that the gravel race at Sea Otter, which if the timing works, I would do. And I think it may actually be on Friday, uh, but I will definitely be riding Logo 650B wheels this year. Last year, <laughs> I think you were in the final kind of production version and I rode the 700C set that you lent me, yeah. which I loved, but it was not the wheel set for this course because it's so rough that the mountain bikers hammered it. There was a lot of just braking bumps, et cetera. So this year I feel like I have the full knowledge. I'm bringing my titanium unicorn frame with a suspension mm -hmm. fork and 650B wide ass tires. And I'm going to mom that course. If I can, if I can have the time to ride it. Mom that course, like M O M bomb. Oh, bomb, bomb that course. Okay. Sorry. I was like, is this, is this some <laughs> new, new slang the kids are using these days? Um, yeah, I feel like, you know, my, my kid slang is not solid. So don't, don't look to me for that. <laughs> but one so, of the things I wanted to revisit, um, you had mentioned, and this is so true. It's like, Seattle has become this moment in the cycling world's year where they reveal some next new technology. Yep. SRAM just kind of dropped a bomb this this mm -hmm. week, I think it was. And I, I think we should dig into that because while it was a, a mountain bike centric release today, it's definitely going to affect the gravel world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's what's next. Um so where do we want to start? Well, why don't you tee up like, what the heck are we talking about? What did I just reference? Well, so SRAM has a new um, group set. It's an electronic mountain bike group set. Um, and the, the key part of this, I, I don't think, you know, the others are covering this in far better detail. Um, Escape Collective, actually, I think it was Dave Rome over there. Um, yeah, he wrote the, this really long form, well, well done uh, piece that I'm referencing, uh, and I also listened to their podcast discussion on the topic. Um, the key element here is the death of the derailleur hanger um, in the back, which I think is a very good thing, but that has some potentially very negative consequences as well that have nothing to do with the tech and the experience and everything to do with competition and innovation in the bicycle industry. We'll roll back for a second. The death of the derailleur hanger. How do you, we have derailleurs. We need derailleurs. Yeah. How are we going to remove the derailleur hanger from this equation? So derailleur hangers, uh, if you go back, um, you know, original derailleurs, they had this little extension on the rear drive side dropout of the frame. And it was all metal frames in the early days. Um, and you would have a threaded, um, you know, a threaded hole that you can screw a derailleur into. And if it bent, you bent it back out. It wasn't replaceable. And so if it snapped off, you had to go to a welder or your frame was toast or it was now a single speed. Um, fast forward, you have, you know, the advent of replaceable derailleur hangers. Um, and with metal frames, these could be made pretty robust. Um, but every company had their own. And anyone who's tried to source a derailleur hanger will know there's like this entire businesses built around having every single last derailleur hanger on hand. 
um, which is absurd. And a lot of the designs aren't very good. And even the good ones can be hard to find. Uh, and literally hundreds, hundreds of different SKUs, um, uh, stocking units. Um, yeah. And when you got to composite frames, they needed to be, you know, composite frames, ultra lightweight aluminum frames, um, you'd have to make them even lighter. So they'd be more prone to bending and breaking. And then you add to that wide range drivetrains that use really big cassettes in the back. So this is, you know, it started with 36 and then 42, and now we're at a 52 tooth pie plate in the back. I'm sure somebody will try to one up everyone else and it'll be 53. And, you know, we'll, 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 at some point it, you'll be riding on your uh, largest cog rather than your tire. Um, and then we'll have 32 ers and 36 er wheels. But, but anyways, not to <laughs> go too far down a rabbit hole, but this just resulted in a situation where you had this, this piece that's designed to fail. It's designed to protect the frame in the event of a crash and designed to be replaceable, but it's a pain to replace it because there's so many different ones. Um, and it's just not up to the task, not to mention it's not, um, you know, something that is, that can fail is also not going to be very stiff. Um, so it's going to affect shifting. Um, and then the precision with which shifting can be controlled, it's not just a matter of the derailleur alignment. It's also, um, if the derailleur is flexing as, uh, sorry, if the hanger is flexing as the derailleur is trying to shift, particularly into a larger cog, you know, yeah. that's going to affect shifting performance. Uh, and then, and yeah, I, I won't be too exhaustive here, but then there's also the fact that you now have another um, set of tolerances between the derailleur and the cogs. So, you know, you have the, the cassette itself, you have the end cap, you have the dropout, you have the hanger, and then you finally get to the derailleur. And yeah. so that just results in a lot of, of, you know, manufacturing tolerance issues across multiple manufacturers. Yeah. So that's how so, we got here today. So in the history, so originally metal frame bending potential for failure there, um, improvement to that next generation of replaceable derailleur hangers. Cause at least if we bent our derailleur hanger, we could replace it. It might be hard to replace, but we could replace it. And then what comes next? So, so yeah, so we've gotten to a place where, you know, this, this particular solution is no longer great. I mean, it's fine. It works. Um, yeah. So a direct mount interface. So this is the, um, SRAM, uh, released a few years ago, their universal derailleur hanger standard. UDH, and you can source this anywhere. It's readily available. It's cheap. Um, it's robust. Um, and a lot of particularly mountain bike manufacturers have been building to this drive side, rear drive side dropout standard so that it can integrate this universal hanger. Yeah. That and as I'm the kind of axle threads right into. Yeah. So I was going to say, as I'm kind of visualizing it, it's sort of a largest, large ish hole in the frame where the axle would go through. And then you're putting the derail the replaceable derailleur hanger, this, this UDH derailleur hanger through the axle next to the frame kind of in that, in that yes. configuration. Yes. And that largely solves the issue of having so many different standards and it is a good standard. It's a well-executed um, derailleur hanger as far as derailleur hangers go. 
but it still has the same constraints that- in terms of being need, uh, you know, needing to be made in a way that it can fail in the event of a crash. And if it can fail in the event of a crash, yeah. it's going to be more flexible and so on. And is that does that work for both SRAM and Shimano derailers? It works for any derailleur because it's still the same exact mounting interface for the derailleur. So that's where we get to today with this release. Okay. And what I believe is the most, you know, uh, uh, well, I, I think it's a, a very significant um, development um, in part because of the performance and durability benefits that it provides, but also significantly because of the implications for innovation and comp- competition uh, in the bike industry. One one question before we go into that, which is just, I think, a real critical point to underscore. The UDH, uh, was that an kind of open source design? Could anybody make a UDH derailleur hanger? Uh, I believe, I, I'm not certain, but um, I wouldn't be surprised because the... Um, the strategic benefit of UDH comes from having it implemented across as many bicycles as possible. And so, yeah. um, and SRAM selling them for cheap. Uh, it's not a huge moneymaker, but you know, I, I, I don't, I can't recall if I sa- have said this directly on the pod, but I've definitely alluded to such things in other conversations. You know, I viewed it as a Trojan horse from day one and a Trojan horse in the sense of um, you have this hanger that may, is the universal hanger, and it is a Trojan horse for a derailleur that bypasses the hanger. And so now my question is, can other derailleur makers also attach to the frame in the same way, bypassing the hanger, or is that unique to SRAM? And now SRAM is the only option that you can have on your bike, and a bike manufacturer has to design, has to choose at the design and manufacturing s- stage, SRAM or not SRAM, just like they choose Bosch or Shimano or Bafang yeah. at when they're building an e-bike, and that that would be a, re, a very negative development um, for reasons that we can get into. Yeah, so we we leapt forward a little bit, and I just want to make sure this is not lost because I derailed the conversation. This sure. new der- derailleur actually does not have that derailleur hanger piece. The Correct. whole entire derailleur, if I'm understanding it correctly, is designed to kind of slot around the frame just mm-hmm. as that hanger did and again used the uh through axle as kind of a supporting mechanism that kind of locks it all together um the it stays attached without the through axle but the through axle threads into it so it attaches to the frame is basically gotcha. a, a hole and then it you know comes together and, and and holds itself in place um and it can rotate uh and so on but uh yeah yeah, the now this new derailleur, um, which is a good thing, attaches and bypasses that hanger. Now, what do you deal in? You know, how do you deal with uh, like uh, a crash, right? How does the new derailleur deal with a crash? Well, first off, it's much more inbound because you don't have that hanger um, design that forces you to you know have more components hanging further out of the bike, so it's tighter, so it's it's less exposed. Um, but then also SRAM has done a really good job of designing a, uh, like a clutch mechanism or, or like a, I forget what they're calling it, but essentially you can impact this thing with a hammer and it's going to, it's going to move, it's going to give, and then you can push it back into place. And the thing is solid. Um, it's, 
it would take quite an impact, um, I suspect, having not ridden it, have, having not seen their testing data, it'd take quite an impact for this derailleur to fail or for it to result in forces to the frame that would cause the frame to fail uh, instead of the hang, instead of the That's- derailleur. It's so interesting, you know, in a world of iterative designs, when you see a leap like this, it's just super interesting. And I encourage people to like source a picture of this to see how it kind of sandwiches around the frame. And as Randall, as you just described, you know, because the derailleur hanger is not in the equation, you do have more kind of girth and protective material right in there. That's part of the derailleur mechanism itself. Mm-hmm. Just super yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, and I, and I would go again, um, not getting paid for this, but I, I'll go ahead and plug escapecollective.cc's coverage of this because it is comprehensive. Um, and it was a, a, one of, it was the best one that I dug up in my research about this. Um, though I'd love to, for them to cover so, some of the economic implications that we can dive into. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about that. So, I mean, obviously like this requires the frame to have had that UDH kind of dropout setup to mm-hmm. begin with. Now, suppose I mean I, I would imagine like okay, if you get a frame like that, you have two options. You could choose a, a new derailleur like this, like the one they just released, or you could still use that original UDH derailleur hanger. Mm-hmm. Say if you wanted to use a Shimano drivetrain. Correct, and as a consequence, Shimano and any other. Um, competing derailleur maker will be stuck using this old interface and not the this new more robust one, and so it's a it, you know being first to market with it and having patented around all the other ways that it could be implemented or attached to. Um, I I don't have a definitive answer on whether or not other derailleur makers can uh, attach to a UDH. Um, universal derailleur hanger equipped bicycle in this same direct mount way. Um, but if yeah. SRAM has precluded others from attaching in that same way, then it truly was the Trojan horse that I was concerned about when I first saw this, because the benefit of a universal derailleur hanger is very obvious. But now you've, we, as an industry, have given up a tremendous amount of freedom in terms of interoper- interoperability and that you know you know that goes into they're now calling this a transmission what does transmission what's the difference between a transmission and a drivetrain all i see is that a transmission means you're not allowed to use other people's components it's all the same parts but it now it is now even more of a walled garden yeah. Um, than than it already yes. was as a result of having a closed protocol. So different, you know, the the shift sh- third party shifters can't communicate with SRAM's derailleurs. You know, a new chain design which has some benefits, but then doesn't work with other or they you know it's claimed not to work with other people's cassettes and chain rings. Um, you know, they have the new bot that the new spindle standard, which again, like um, that is more open. Um, so you know, the dub uh, spindle standard. Um, and has some other benefits, but it, and then you have the fact that, like as an OEM, um, already they were not allowing OEMs to mix and match components from third parties, even if they um, um, were compatible, or if, or if the OEM was taking the risk of it not working. Um, and in fact, you know, so like in our case, we ended up ha- having to buy an entire Grupo 
and then just hold on to the stock we didn't want to use so that we could offer some third-party components from, say, you know, E13's cassette or our aluminum cranks for, you know, more budget option or whatever. Um, uh, you know, and, and then we end up sitting on some extra SRAM stock that we were forced to buy. Yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting and just super interesting to kind of play this forward in this, you know, does the does the historic way a derailleur attach go away over time? And what happens if you have a fr old frame and parts don't become available because everything's transitioning to this new format? Well, I think that there's, you know, again, um, still not clear. I would love if, if any listener has, you know, has or wants to dive into SRAM's patents on this, I'll do so myself at some point. Um, I have some clarity on whether or not other third-party derailleurs can attach in the same way. Uh, that would be, you know, that would be a, a significant, um, significant thing to know. Um, and you know, this this fits. The interesting thing here is um, it fits a pattern uh, where so already like um, there's a lot of patents around shift lever design, and on a road bike, you know, as soon as you have you know, shift leaders and levers integrated with the, um, well, first it was indexing. So instead of friction shifters, you had like indexed, um, which indexing. So you have those little clicks that knock it into certain gears. And those clicks are used to correspond with a mechanical system with a certain amount of pull, like the pull ratio of the cable to actuate the derailleur. And so, you know, Shimano would constantly vary their pull ratio to make their own different group sets not compatible with each other or to preclude, ironically, uh, grip shifts, the precursor to SRAM, from getting any market share. Uh, and then when that wasn't working quite well enough, they forced, oh, they, they didn't force, they told OEMs, like, if you buy a complete group set, you get a 20% discount or whatever it was. And as a result, it was no longer economic to, to, um, to spec grip shift on your bike. Um, and the ironic thing is uh, SRAM sued them, won millions of dollars. Um, it, that may, I don't know if that lawsuit was existential for them, but certainly um, had it gone the other way, we might not have SRAM as we know it. Uh, and now we're seeing what for me looks like very analogous sort of um, anti-competitive um, tendencies in the bike industry that will just, cons we're seeing innovation, but you have to ask the question, what innovation would we see if more people, if more companies were allowed to innovate on the individual components uh, and, the, and the, you know, interoperability was something that was uh, considered from the get-go as opposed to very actively, you know, thwarted. Yeah. The battle continues, I suppose. And we'll yeah. see whether it's uh, through some sleuthing through patent documents or a year from now, let's say another manufacturer comes out with a derailleur that attaches in the same way. It's going to be interesting to see, as you noted early on, this current announcement is a mountain bike grupo, but I, I know several manufacturers, including uh, Envy with their new Mog gravel bike is using this dropout. So they're certainly prepared on a going forward basis to use this type of derailleur system should one come out specific, uh, in the Explorer Grupo. Yeah. And, um, there's a, a really good case study that I dug up years ago when I was working on the open bike project, which was an attempt to create an open platform for bicycle electronics and software and hardware. 
um, called Shimano Inside. Uh, and I dug it up and I will make sure that we put it in the show notes for anyone who's curious about the history of, um, you know, SRAM and Shimano and, and, you know, the evolution of the derailleur and pull ratios and all this other stuff and how it affects uh, economics and market dynamics, which as you can tell, I have a little bit of an interest in. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was so, fun. I mean, that was big news that came out this week. And certainly if any, you know, if any of our listeners want to jump into the conversation, come into the ridership, that's at the ridership or sorry, www.theridership.com and look forward to those conversations. I, ch- I can hold my, I feel like I can hold my own to a certain degree, certainly on the economic side and the game theory and strategy side of things. But as we get into the deeper technical nuances, you definitely have me in spades. Yeah. Well, um, I have spent way too much time on this and spoken with, um, you know, when I was doing the open bike projects, you know, every single Taiwanese vendor who was trying to uh, get the other Taiwanese vendors to work together on a, on an open platform and things like this. So it's something I've gotten into the weeds in uh, on maybe in a uniquely deep way. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to actually share. I've been wanting to nerd about this sort of thing on the pod since uh, since joining, and there just hasn't been the appropriate time. But with this, uh, it just seemed like the time was right. Um, I do want to close up with one thought on this, um, which is um, the engineering on this new group set from SRAM looks outstanding. They have some super clever stuff in there. Um, and I commend the engineering, the engineering, I, there's a lot of things that I look at and I was like, wow, I, that never even occurred to me. Like they have this pulley wheel on the hanger that, um, is super skeletal. So it has a lot of space and it's big. It's one of the, you know, 16 teeth and they designed it in a way where if, if something gets jammed in there, like a stick, well, it's an aluminum, um, like spider that that the bearings are in and then there's a uh, a plastic uh piece that is the actual cogs and that can spin independent of that spider this is brilliant uh, so so yeah. if that wheel if the something gets jammed in the spider and stops it that'll keep spinning um so you know there's lots of clever stuff like this and so i don't want to at all take away from the design and the engineering the execution on this and the fact that it is genuine um a genuine leap forward in innovation for the industry. I'm just concerned about the implications for innovation generally and, you know, the loss of uh, competition even until now, meaning that, you know, maybe we would have had these innovations much sooner if we didn't have these dynamics. Yeah. 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 Important to note and acknowledge that amazing innovation that the design team over there had worked on. You sort of wonder if they were just given a blank slate and said, you know, think about, performance in the derailleur and the dropout and the hanger don't be constrained by anything and this is what they came up with you need a lot of resource and a lot of market power to make something like that work which is why you know you only see uh really sram and shimano able to do it these days and uh campy has done a good job with ecar in creating a competitive product but it's 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 not a, um you know, it's not electronic. It's not, it's not really moving the needle that much. It's just an extra cog for the most part. Uh, yeah. 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 But, uh, well, super good to catch up with you, my friend. Yeah. We've been nerding for a bit. Should we, uh, save, save the other things we had on our list for a future conversation, I suppose. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. I think Very so. Good. Well, good to catch up and we'll, we'll chat again soon and we'll get all these links in the show notes so people can dig deep, read all about this and form their own opinions. Yeah. And absolutely drop some comments too in the ridership. Um, I would love to get some external perspective here because usually this is just a you know, industry insider talk. And um, I don't know that this has been discussed in a public forum all that much. So I uh, would love to hear uh, the community's input. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride podcast. As Randall just mentioned, we'd love to hear from you on this topic at The Ridership. Just visit www.theridership.com to join the conversation. Big thanks to our friends at Hammerhead for sponsoring the show this week. If you're interested in a Karoo 2, make sure to use the code THEGRAVELRIDE and add a heart rate monitor to your order, and you'll get that heart rate monitor for free. Just simply visit hammerhead.io. If you are interested or able to support the podcast, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride, where ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated in the podcast world. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. (laughs) 